0: My guest today is an astronomer. He's the first to discover an intact planet closely orbiting a white dwarf. Please welcome Dr. Andrew Vanderberg. Andrew, how's it going?
1: I'm doing great. How are
0: you? I'm doing fine. Doing fine, man. Doing great. Thank you for coming on to the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Good, good. So let's jump right into it. What do you do?
1: I am an astronomer. I'm a professor of astronomy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
0: Okay. And let's back up a little bit. How long ago did you know that you wanted to take this path being an astronomer? Was it all your life when you were a child? When did this happen?
1: If you asked my grandmother, I'm sure she could go and pull up drawings of the planets in our own solar system that I made when I was three or four. So perhaps it's not that much of a stretch to say that I've been destined to study planets for my entire life, but I never really felt that way. I knew for a long time that I was interested in doing science, but it was not until I was in college that I really kind of settled on astronomy and on planets outside of our solar system in general as a focus. So I got my bachelor's degrees at the University of California, Berkeley. Then I went to graduate school at Harvard, and I got my master's and PhD there. Then I became what's called a postdoc. So essentially a professional astronomer who's on sort of temporary funding. So kind of a few years at a time where you kind of get to just do whatever you want to do, study whatever you want to study without encumbrances. So I did three years at the University of Texas as a postdoc. And then I applied for jobs and eventually was offered a job as a professor here at the University of Wisconsin. And I just started a couple of weeks ago or oh. a couple of months ago now. So well, congrats. Um, thank you.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, great. Now, let's talk about this recent discovery that you did. So you led a group of international team of astronomers and you discovered the first intact planet that was found closely orbiting an actual white dwarf. Can you talk a little bit about that and the significance of that?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I'll explain what a white dwarf is because that's important. Mm -hmm. So we're all familiar with stars like our sun. Our sun is bright, it keeps us warm, and the way it does that is by burning hydrogen fuel and nuclear reactions. So these are the same kind of nuclear fusion reactions that we've been trying to use on Earth to produce a lot of power, but we haven't been able to do that yet. The sun does it very efficiently and it has these huge fuel reserves. It's a ginormous ball of hydrogen gas. So all of that gas could eventually potentially be turned into helium and used to fuel us and keep us warm in our solar system. But eventually our sun will run out of nuclear fuel. That'll happen for us in a long time. So we don't need to worry about it now, about 7 billion years from now. But when that happens, the star will eventually puff up it will get really, really big, about 200 times its current size. That's big enough that it will engulf inner parts of our solar system. Into a
0: red star, red giant star? Exactly, yeah,
1: it'll become a red giant star. It'll get really big, it'll engulf Mercury, it'll engulf Venus, it Mm -hmm. might engulf Earth as well, but Earth may be pushed out a little further. Uh, So it's a little bit on the table Regardless, Earth's not gonna be a great place to be around them because it'll be skimming the surface of the star if not inside of it. But the outer parts of the solar system should survive. So when the sun really does finally use up its last drop of fuel, it will shed its outer layers. The red giant will be puffed away essentially into space. And all that will be left is the small hot core of the star, which will then cool down into what we call a white dwarf. So a white dwarf is like the corpse of a star, like our sun. And what we found is we think we see a planet. We're very confident that there's something there. Whether or not it's a planet or something just a little bit bigger than a planet is a little bit up for debate. But we're pretty sure it's a planet, too, orbiting very closely to that star. So the question is, how could it have gotten there? Because all of the inner parts of that solar system would have been engulfed by the star when it became a giant. So it's a little bit of a mystery. If the planet is there now, it must have been further out. So how did it get there? And eventually we hope that studying planets like these will tell us what the future of our own solar system holds, what will happen to the planets in our own solar system once our sun runs out of hydrogen fuel.
0: Okay. And the reason that it gets engulfed is because when it's a giant star, is that immense gravity? Is that why?
1: It actually just gets bigger. Oh, okay. Uh, the sun will expand so much that it will crash into
0: Got the it. planets. Okay, wow. Okay, it actually crashed into it. Yeah. It's
1: pretty crazy, yeah.
0: <laughs> and now for something like this, this is, I think it was something like 80 light years away. So can you talk about some of the tools that you use? I know, I think it was the TESS satellite that you used and the Spitzer telescope, but I think has been retired. But can you talk about some of the tools that were used for this discovery? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the way we found this planet originally was in data from the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. We call it TESS, that's its acronym. TESS is NASA's most up-to-date, latest planet-hunting device. And what it does, it was launched in 2018, and it has four cameras that take images of the sky constantly. So every couple of minutes, every two minutes for some stars, and every 30 minutes for almost the entire sky. And what it does with these images is it measures the brightness of every star that it looks at, constantly, repeatedly, over and over again. So the reason we're doing that is because we're trying to look for small changes in the brightness of these stars. So imagine that that star might have a planet orbiting it if that planet is orbiting just perfectly so that its orbit takes us between takes it between the star and our telescopes TESS it will block part of the light from the star it'll essentially cast its shadow onto TESS and we will see that as a dimming of the light so this is what we did for this white dwarf TESS observed millions of stars thousands of white dwarfs and we looked through all of them with computer algorithms to try to identify any time that those stars repeatedly dimmed on a regular schedule. And if that happened, we assumed that perhaps there is a planet orbiting that star.
0: Nice. OK, wow. <laughs> now- can you talk about any other kind of cool discoveries or, or just unique things that you've seen? I've heard of things such as planets made completely out of diamonds or planets made of ice but on fire, some planets where it's raining glass, things of that nature. Can you talk about some of the unique things that you've seen?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that we've learned about in the 30 years since we started finding the first planets outside of our solar system is how diverse they are. Mm. If you look at our solar system, and for hundreds of years, those were the only planets we knew about in our universe. You can see some really nice patterns. The solar system planets all tend to be flat. They all tend to orbit in the same direction. And if you look at those orbits in three dimensions, they're all kind of orbiting in the same plane. We call this the ecliptic plane. So they all kind of go in the same direction. Everything's orderly. They're not getting close to each other ever. And they're all going in relatively circular orbits. But the first exoplanets that we found changed our notion of that. It turns out that that doesn't have to be the way planets are. We've seen planets that are orbiting backwards. They're orbiting in the direction opposite the way their star spins. We see planets that are tugging on each other drastically. Every time they go around the star, they tug on each other a little bit more and pull each other and change their orbits. We've seen planets that are on extremely elliptical orbits so far that they come and barely graze the surface of their star and then go out beyond the orbit of Earth at the end of their orbits. So there's just a tremendous diversity of weird and wacky things that we've found in planets outside of our solar system that we just really didn't think was possible until we started looking.
0: All right. And then back to your discovery, your recent discovery. Can you just talk about the theories for this?
1: Yeah, so how could this planet have gotten there? So it's actually been really fun. We released this study in uh, early September. And while we were working on it, we were trying to think, how could this planet possibly have come to be here? Because we knew it had to start far away. And we thought of some ideas. And since then, there have been a lot of other professional astronomers who've been thinking about it as well. And I've counted five papers already that have been released trying to explain how this could have been. Mm. And the fun thing is that there are lots of different ideas of those five papers. Three of them say one thing, one says another, and one says a final thing. And we had several ideas of our own in our own paper. We didn't really say definitively what way it could have been. So there's a lot of different ways. So the first possible way that people have thought about forming these things is by gravitational influences. So what happens when two planets come a little bit too close to each other? Their gravity can be strong enough to tweak them into different orbits. So one thing that we think could have happened is when the white dwarf formed, when it lost some of its mass because it lost those outer layers of its envelope its gravity got a little bit weaker, which meant that the planets could tug on each other a little bit more. And that could have enhanced these events where they came really close together and shoot planets in different directions. So one thing that we think could have happened is there could have been a scattering event, as we call it, where two planets came close to each other, shot one planet out, and shot one planet very close inwards towards the white dwarf. Mm -hmm. Once it got close enough, the white dwarf's gravity stretched that planet, heated it up, and stole some of the energy from its fall into that heating process. It never recovered quite as far back, and eventually over millions or billions of years, orbit shrunk and came in close to the way we see it. There's a similar idea that there's two stars in the system. We know that those stars are there that could have had similar gravitational influences and caused a similar uh, elongation of the orbit, causing the planet to slowly shrink inwards and come to where we see it today. And the final idea is maybe the planet actually was partially engulfed by the star, but it was actually massive enough to survive. And instead of just getting totally engulfed and evaporated, it held together and its path through the star as it was immersed inside of the star's layers was enough to shoot those layers off and leave it unscathed very close in right before it crashed into the core. So there's a lot of different ideas and it's really fun to see all of the astronomers try to figure out which one might be the right one
0: wow so interesting okay and now you talked about being into astronomy and being into the planets in the solar systems and things of that nature since you were three or four years old i know at that point pluto was a planet so Mm -hmm. when did you come to realize that it wasn't a planet and do you remember what your feelings at first when it was i'm guessing you're pretty young so do you remember that
1: I was in high school when Pluto was demoted. Okay. Um, I don't think I had the same visceral emotional reaction that a lot of people did. <laughs> I kind of understood where the astronomers were coming from. But as I've learned more, I'm not entirely sure that that was the right decision. And the reason is it all comes down to what you believe is a planet. Right. And the definition that they made tried to draw a line between the large planets, the eight planets that are currently defined as planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and these more numerous smaller objects. But if you look at only our solar system, it may be possible to draw that line. But when we look at other solar systems, how can we even start to say anything just based on one system? We don't know yet enough to say really whether there's a big difference between those smaller objects and the larger ones. Is it just there's a range? Is it just that our solar system really does have many more planets than we wish to think? So I think that perhaps in the future, when we're able to detect smaller and smaller planets around other stars, similar to Pluto, we may be able to come back with clearer minds and with a better perspective and decide for once and for all, whether or not these really do belong in the class of planets or whether they belong somewhere else. So I think we're still too ignorant to say for sure what's really the right answer.
0: Yeah. So you're saying there's a chance Pluto might be a planet again.
1: (laughs) If if it's not, it's still awesome. You know, dwarf planets are still great. Yeah.
0: Fair point. All right, so so with your work, I, I figure that you have to be in certain locations to, utilize some of these tools that you mentioned. So with what's going on now with the pandemic, how has that been affecting your work?
1: Yeah, so astronomy had actually been moving towards teleworking at telescopes Mm. for a long time before the pandemic. So back in the 1950s, there are these stories of the 200 inch telescope at Palomar Observatory, which was the biggest telescope in the world at the time. It's in Southern California. And what you would do is you would be an astronomer, you would go to that telescope, you would get on a, uh, on a ladder, climb all the way up to the top of this 50 foot long boom that essentially flies around with the telescope pointing at it. And you would manually put photographic plates into the path of the light, take your images, pull your photographic plate out, put the next one in, and then the next morning you go and develop them. So we've come a long way since then. We no longer have to go and physically fly around 50 feet in the air on top of the telescope in the cold all night, which I think is a great thing. <laughs> I would not necessarily enjoy that. <laughs> and as time and technology has progressed, all of our work has really become a lot more digital. Mm. So all of our cameras are digital cameras. When we go to a telescope now, we just sit at a computer and in a warm room next to the telescope, and click uh, play, and it starts taking those images with that digital camera. At some point, someone realized, you know, we could do this just as easily, not from the next room, but from the comfort of our homes or from a convenient room on our university campus. And it's a lot cheaper. It requires a lot less travel. It's perhaps a little bit harder to do just because there's something nice about, about being able to go outside and look and see, oh, there's some clouds over there. I need to miss that part of the sky for now and concentrate over here where the clouds aren't, but over the course of time, just the sheer convenience had been already transforming us from going to the observatories in person to doing it remotely. So the pandemic is making it a little bit harder. Now it's harder for us to go even to our university. So we have to do it from home, but. I think it may just be accelerating a trend that was already happening, kind of like I think a lot of other industries are realizing now that working from home is actually something that we could do and people had already been moving that way for a while. Now, it is challenging, of course, because you still have to have people at the telescopes to get them ready in the night, but the traveling is able to be cut down a lot. And usually these re- observatories are in pretty remote locations. So pandemic is not as... Big of a deal it's not as easy to transmit when you're out in the middle of the desert as it is in the middle of a big city
0: that's great that's great it's convenient all right now can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like
1: yeah so my day is a lot less glamorous than a lot of people would think hearing that i'm an astronomer and one of the reasons is a lot of the data that i get comes from space telescopes So TESS is up in space. You mentioned Spitzer earlier, Spitzer is up in space. I used to use data from the Kepler telescope in space. I'm not going up there to collect my data in person. Instead, I download it from the internet. So a lot of the time that I spend working on data and working on astronomical observations, I'm mostly sitting at my computer, downloading things and writing custom software to try to analyze those data and try to learn stuff from them. So really, the thing that I do in my research the most is computer programming. These days, I'm moving more from a role in which I sat down and did all of that stuff myself and moving more into an advisory role. So as a professor, I have a bunch of students who are working with me. I have students who take my classes, but I also have students who want to learn about doing research. And what I've been spending a lot of time doing now is meeting with them over Zoom or over Skype or on the internet and helping them learn how to do the data analysis that I've been doing so that they can learn these practices and start doing research themselves. So I think that's almost even more fun than doing it myself. I can live the vicarious thrill of doing things for the first time again through my students, which is great.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. And then talking about research, you mentioned you did a PhD at Harvard, correct? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what your thesis was?
1: Yeah. So my thesis was using data from the Kepler telescope. So Kepler was NASA's first planet-hunting mission that was purely designed to search for exoplanets. And I love Kepler. It's my favorite space telescope. I'll never, I'll never love another telescope the way I love <laughs> Kepler. Um, and it launched when I was in high school just finishing high school in 2009, and it had its primary mission for four years. When I was an undergrad, I started working on Kepler data, and that was one of the things that really convinced me that exoplanets was the field that I wanted to study. There was just this amazing data set. We were learning so much new stuff about the planets outside of our solar system. Even today, almost three quarters of the planets we know about were discovered by Kepler it's, you know, just this incredible legacy for this telescope. And I decided I want to go to grad school. So I applied to all these places. And I wrote on my applications, I want to use data from Kepler to study exoplanets. And then about two weeks after I signed the papers and said, I'm going to come to Harvard, Kepler broke, and the mission ended. So I was really bummed. Um, You know, this beautiful space telescope that has been producing all of this great data no longer can do what it was originally doing. But fortunately for me, and fortunately, I think for all of astronomy, uh, NASA and ball aerospace have some really clever engineers and they figured a way that they could keep Kepler running, even if it wasn't as perfect as it was originally. So the problem was that one of the devices that uses to point itself, to steer itself is this gyroscope and one of those gyroscopes broke. So we didn't have enough control over where the telescope was pointing. So what NASA and Ball Aerospace figured out is that if you balance Kepler very carefully against the light from the sun, you can kind of keep it pointed in the same place, not nearly as steadily, but well enough to do some good stuff. So my thesis involved learning how to deal with this new data because it wasn't as steady. It was wobbling around a little bit the data was a lot harder to manage. So I figured out ways to fix that and make it a lot easier to work with. And then essentially once I had the new data and it was looking a lot better, I was able to go and try to learn things and do science with it. So that was what my thesis was mostly about.
0: Okay, great, great. And now I could be wrong, but I think there's a huge massive telescope that's being either created or moved to Hawaii. But just in general, with these newer telescopes, what are the major differences between them and some of the older ones, like the Kepler telescopes?
1: Yeah, so people often wonder why we astronomers need so many telescopes, and why we need this newer, better telescope. And there's a couple of reasons. And one of them is that uh, when we th- put stuff into space, we can't repair it. So eventually. Kepler did run out of fuel and had to be decommissioned. So we no longer have Kepler available to us. And that's why we launched TESS. When it comes to building the next bigger telescope or the next telescope that we're going to put into space, a lot of it comes down to sheer power. The bigger a telescope is, the more light it can collect. And the more light it can collect, the further away it can peer and the more distant uh, the objects it can look at. So I think the telescope you may be thinking about is the James Webb Space Telescope. This is going to essentially be the flagships telescope after Hubble. So the Hubble telescope has been kind of uh, our most powerful telescope in the cosmos for the last 30 years or so.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: James Webb will surpass it and will do different things Hubble never could. And that's because James Webb is bigger, so it can look further. But also it's optimized to look in different kinds of light. So Hubble looked in light the way we see it with our eyes, visible light. James Webb is going to look primarily at infrared light, which is the light that's emitted by warm things. So it's a little bit different. And it means that we can study galaxies that are even further away from us. And for me, I'm excited about it because it means we can study the molecules and the atmospheres of exoplanets, and we can start going from finding these planets to really learning about them and seeing what they're made of and seeing just how similar or how different they are from the planets around solar system.
0: Okay. And now you've seen all these different galaxies. You've seen some planets that have similar characteristics to earth. Do you think that there is life on other planets?
1: I think it's unavoidable just because our universe is so vast Mm -hmm. and there are so many planets. One of Kepler's legacies was that we now know there are more planets in our galaxy than there are stars on a statistical basis. We found so many planets with Kepler that, that the only way it was possible for us to find it is if planets outnumber the stars in our galaxy. And the planets in the habitable zone, in this region where it's warm enough to have liquid water, but not so warm that that turns into a runaway greenhouse effect and is too hot for life to exist like it is on Venus. We think that those planets are common as well. So I think when you just look at the sheer numbers, there are billions of stars in our galaxy, billions of galaxies in only our corner of the universe. It would be a crazy coincidence for us to be the only life out there. It just doesn't seem possible to me. The real question, I think, is how far away is the nearest life? Is life common enough that it's just going to be on every star? Or is it far enough away that we really are kind of the only life in our corner of the cosmos where it'll be easiest for us to detect it? And I think either one of those would be just a revolutionary idea for us as humanity to grapple with. Either we're a dime a dozen, we're nothing, or we're special and unusual. And I don't really know which of those is the more profound thing. And hopefully in the next couple of decades, we'll have the telescopes and the tools to be able to figure it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, can you talk about what skills and characteristics you believe are most important to be successful in your line of field?
1: Yeah. So a lot of people think that to be an astronomer or to be a physicist, you have to be just a pure brainiac. And that certainly helps. Um, You know, we do a lot of math, we do a lot of physics, but that's really not the whole story. And there are lots of things that can make you a good astronomer or a good physicist. So one of those other characteristics is, you know, how well you can work in teams. When we do the cutting-edge science that really pushes the envelope. It's no longer the case that usually breakthroughs are made by one or two people. It's these giant teams. So, if you are familiar with the LIGO experiment, the gravitational wave observatory, those, uh, you know, that observatory that first detected gravitational waves from colliding black holes totally revolutionized how we think about our universe. Instead of just using light to learn about our universe, we can now use gravitational waves as well and learn totally new things. Okay. Those experiments, decades and thousands of people working on them. And all of those people have to work well together in a team to make progress like that. So teamwork is one thing. Mm -hmm. Communication, when you're a scientist and you come up with this new theory or these new observations, no one will pay attention to you if you can't explain it well to other scientists and convince them that this is something they should be thinking about. The ability to kind of guess where the field is going, we're all pushing into the unknown. Knowing where the next fruitful avenue of research is gonna be is tricky as well. there's just so many different things that you have to think about. And I guess the final one is you know, perseverance. You know, Science is hard. Most of the things that we do end up being wrong. We carefully try things, doesn't work. Try something else, doesn't work. Try something else, it doesn't work. It's very different from the skills that you learn kind of in elementary school, middle school, high school, where you try something, you have a deadline for next Friday. You have better have it working by then. And if you don't have it working, you fail. If that were how science worked, we would all fail. You know, it's just different game. So the kind of ability to push through all of that is really important as well. So it's really not just about your brains, it's about all of these different things and how they all come together. And some people have, you know, different specialties essentially. They have different, you know, mm. skills that they're particularly good at and they're great scientists. And other people have a totally different skill set. And it's only by working together all of us that we can make big progress on the big problems.
0: Okay. No, I like it. Being a brainiac, team working, <laughs> communication skills, and perseverance. All right. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do?
1: I think it is so cool to be able to know something for the first time that no one else on the planet knows about. I saw in my data that there is a planet orbiting this star, and I'm the only one in the world out of 7 billion people who knows about it. That feeling never gets old, really. That's cool. You know, it's a great feeling. And I love being able to kind of choose what I work on. I love kind of being able to follow my curiosity. If I have uh, an idea and I think it's worth doing, I can just start playing around with it. And that's... What being a good scientist is just kind of poking around looking for ideas most of your ideas won't pan out but maybe the one that will is something that's going to be really exciting to a lot of other people and will teach us something new about the universe i think it's great
0: yeah yeah and do you have a favorite planet
1: uh that's it's always a hard question <laughs> <laughs> the cop-out answer is that my favorite planet is earth uh Fair i live enough. here i like it a lot <laughs> We don't know enough about the other planets outside of our solar system yet to say whether they're anywhere near as nice as Earth, Mm -hmm. even though we hope to imagine that some of them are. If I had to choose, you know, a favorite planet that I've studied, it would probably be one called HIP 116454. That was kind of the first one that I discovered, and Mm -hmm. I learned a lot in the process of doing that. So it's always going to be a little bit special to me. All
0: right. Great. And you talked about what you love, about what you do. What about challenges? Are there any challenges or obstacles out there for you in what you do?
1: Yeah. Science, it's really rewarding when it works, but sometimes it can just keep hitting you over and over the things that you try, just don't work. So there are definitely times when I feel like things aren't working well and I got to just keep pushing through at the moment right now, I'm feeling challenged and kind of adjusting to my new job it's a steep learning curve. I feel like as a professor, I have three jobs. One of those is teaching. One of those is doing my research, which is what I mostly focused on before I became a professor throughout grad school and as a postdoc. And then the third one is kind of administration. So I kind of have been thrown into the deep end here where I have to learn two new jobs while you know on doing on-the-job training. So it's a little bit challenging to figure out how to manage my time, what's the thing to prioritize, who do I go to find this form and get this submitted, stuff like that. So I'm running through it. I've I've heard it gets better. I've heard it gets easier. So hopefully <laughs> we'll get there in a couple of months and I'll be feeling a little bit less overwhelmed than I am right now.
0: Now, talking about that, talking about the challenges and being overwhelmed at times. So what do you do? What are your hobbies or what do you do outside of work or, or some things that you do to kind of relieve stress?
1: Yeah. So I enjoy watching watching the Netflix, watching the Hulu. I've been going for walks, trying to just get out of the apartment since I've been working from home for eight months now. When I get the chance, I like to go uh, and I enjoy photography. So going somewhere cool and taking some pictures and you know seeing how they go. I'd almost like someday to even try to do that on a more... Amateur professional level, like I don't mm. know, wedding photography, that might be a little pastime for me. Of course, at the moment, not too many weddings happen in person. Right. And at the moment, I'm also pretty overwhelmed with my job. So I'm trying to focus on that. But someday in the future, maybe.
0: Okay, great. That's great. All right. And now, do you have any memorable moments in your career that stick out? You talked about a couple moments, like the planet that you discovered and then your recent discovery, but any moments that stick out?
1: Yeah. Often, People think of scientists scribbling down notes and then, but in Eureka, you have this moment where you just totally understand things. And usually it doesn't work that way. My first planet, HIP 116454b, you don't need to remember the phone number. (laughs) (laughs) I first saw it in, I think, April, but it was not really until maybe October, November, December of that year that I was really confident that it was real and that it was there. It was a very gradual process. So there was no real Eureka moment there. But I have had one of those, which really stuck out to me. So it was looking through data from Kepler. It was another white dwarf, actually. And this was actually the reason I became interested in planets around dead stars, white dwarfs. But I kind of came across it by accident. So there was this planet-like this planet signal around a white dwarf called WD-1145 plus 017, which, again, you don't need to remember all the phone (laughs) numbers. And... It was surprising because we'd never really seen anything like it around a white dwarf before. So whenever you see something weird in science, it's usually a good idea to kind of dig in and see is, you know, what's going on here? Is there something unusual or is some, some mistake has been made? Have we just been fooled by some artifact in data? And that's kind of the biggest challenge. Am I being tricked or is this really something weird and new and exciting? And so I started sending some emails and I asked some colleagues for favors to see if they could take a look at it and see what they thought. And we started observing it with a telescope on the ground in Arizona. And we kept taking data and nothing really seemed to make sense. We had seen this dimming signal with Kepler where we thought perhaps a planet was going in front of the star. But when we looked from the ground, it wasn't there. And we looked three nights over the course of a couple of weeks and saw nothing when we were supposed to see something. So we were about to give up. But fortunately, my advisor scheduled observations for one more night. And on that night, we saw something that was exactly what we must have been seeing in Kepler, but it was different than what we'd expected. So instead of seeing this normal dimming pattern, like you would for a planet going across a star. It was a dimming pattern that had a particular shape. And that shape implied that something that was not round was going across that star. And in fact, it looked like it was almost like a comet. Like there was a dense region of material near the front of it. And then there was like this diffuse tail of debris coming off. And the second that I saw that I realized, oh, this isn't a planet. This is debris from a planet. It's a planet that's being torn up by the gravity of that white dwarf. And I remember that I got this email at about 1am. Was, I was about to go to it. I was in bed. And I was just checking my email one last time. I saw that data. And I I was so amped that I couldn't sleep. So I decided to start writing the paper and I stayed up for three more hours and <laughs> just started writing uh, because I couldn't think of anything else. It was just too exciting. So that was perhaps my one Eureka moment.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. So in that process of becoming a white dwarf, either A, anything around that star when it becomes the red giant star is going to be engulfed when it grows to that immense size mm-hmm. and it will get destroyed or B, when it shrinks and turns into that white dwarf, that immense gravity is going to basically tear up anything that's around that white dwarf.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like this new discovery, this object, which we think is smaller and probably rocky, must have been far away in the solar system. And it must have come in probably by a similar process by getting just too close to another planet Mm -hmm. that shot it inwards. But this object was unlucky And it got too close to the white dwarf. And it got so close, in fact, that the gravity from the white dwarf stretched it so much that it came apart. This is called spaghettification. I'm sure some people may have heard this term describing black holes. The idea is that if a person falls towards a black hole, which of course has even stronger gravity, they will be so stretched by it that they'll be essentially pulled apart like spaghetti. It's a little yeah. bit gruesome, but it's a very memorable term, which is why I use it. So that exact same process happens to planets if they did too close to white dwarfs. So we think that that's what happened here. This was a planet that just got a little bit too close and got pulled apart, and now is essentially in the process of orbiting around and then getting pummeled. This debris cloud is crashing into itself, turning it into dust, and then that dust eventually travels onto the white dwarf, hits its surface, and then sinks down to the core. We'll never see it again. So it's almost like the disassembly of a planet, which is really cool because we actually get to see what's inside of planets because of that.
0: Oh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. You describe a white dwarf very well. Can you also describe a black hole and just how you observe a black hole?
1: Yeah. So a black hole is also the remnant of a star, but it's a remnant of a star that's much bigger than the sun. So the black hole's gravity is so strong that it cannot even hold itself up just by material crashing together. So like, think about it this way. When you walk around on Earth, gravity is pulling you towards the center of the Earth, but we don't fall to the center of the Earth. And that's because there's a repulsion between us and between the ground, and that holds us up. So for white dwarfs, they're at the very extreme end of this repulsion. They're still held up by it, but just barely. Black holes, there's just too much gravity. And even that repulsion of matter not wanting to be on top of itself is not strong enough to hold it up. A black hole just collapses into everything. In fact, it's so dense, it's so compact that not even light can escape from it. And that's what we call a black hole. You can't see any light coming from inside of it. So how do we find them? Yeah. And the answer <laughs> is we look for stuff that's almost about to be sucked into the black hole. Because the black hole is massive and it's very small, as stuff falls in towards it, it starts to go really fast. It starts to crash into itself and it produces very energetic light, x-rays, gamma rays, these forms of light that are really bad for you. If you absorb too much of them into your bodies, they'll break apart your DNA and give you cancer. So we look for that kind of radiation with telescopes in space, fortunately, Earth's atmosphere filters out that radiation so we don't have to worry about gamma rays from black holes hurting us, which is which is good. But for astronomers it's a little bit sad because it means we have to go to space to observe them. So yeah, pluses or minuses. We should be happy that we'd get <laughs> that radiation here, I guess. <laughs> Even if astronomers wish it were easier to observe it. So yeah, that's the main way we find black holes
0: okay great thank you thanks for that well hey andrew this has been great we're at the end of this interview i want to go to this quick hitter session where i ask you questions for fun for people to get to know you a little bit better but before we do that though i want to find out if there's anything that you would like to add or anything that you think i might have left off asking you
1: i i think we've covered a lot i Mm. think it sounds great
0: okay great great so let's go to these quick hitter questions what is your favorite sports team
1: the san antonio spurs
0: all right. Okay. What is your favorite movie or show?
1: I think my favorite show appropriately is Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Although right now we're enjoying watching Lost for the first time.
0: Okay. Have you seen The Orville?
1: I have seen some of The Orville. I think What do you think great. of that?
0: I felt like it uses a lot of good concepts and I thought it was really well done.
1: I thought so too. It's, you know, it's of course a little bit sillier, but I'm okay with that. (laughs) And it covers some of the same ideas and concepts that old Star Trek used to, which I particularly like. So I love that Joe.
0: Okay, great. Favorite musical artist or group?
1: I've been enjoying listening to Avicii recently.
0: All right. Favorite vacation spot?
1: Colorado, Rocky Mountain National Park.
0: All right. And last favorite food or drink?
1: I really enjoy bubble smoothies, so smoothies with tapioca in them.
0: Yeah, okay, I like those. All right, now one other question for you, just thought of this. With everything that's going on with SpaceX, would you go out to Mars? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
1: I'll stay Earthbound for myself.
0: (laughs) Got it, same here. All right, well, Andrew, this has been great these discoveries that you're doing, discovering new planets, discovering planets orbiting white dwarfs and all these different things that you're able to do and are doing, I think are great. Just congrats on all your accomplishments so far. And thanks for coming on to this podcast. Can you tell people where they can reach out to you and, and contact you if they have any questions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. I would be happy to you know, answer questions. You can Google my name and find my email address. It's avanderberg at whisk.edu. And in particular, if you're interested in studying astronomy or if you're interested in coming to graduate school and studying exoplanets, please drop me a line and send in an application because I'm always looking for new students to help learn about our universe.
0: That is awesome. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Thanks so much. All right, have a good one. Talk to you later. All right, bye. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.